Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Before we dive in, I'd just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. They have helped over 70,000 customers be pension confident by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. They also have a great Sharia compliant pension option as well, which is why we personally really like them. And you can check out a review of their offering on the Sharia side on our website. Welcome, everyone, to the third episode of the IFG Weekly News Roundup. And we have today the wonderful Muhammad Al-Talib, who you've seen before, the associate IFG.vc and a Will's lead. Will's lead now as well, yeah. And we've got the main man, Kabzi, who is bringing you this, usually, behind the camera. But today he's in front of the camera. Kabzi is a man of many talents. Uh, He's been a comedian in his past life. He's worked in finance. And now he's slumming it with us. Indeed. <laughs> <a videographer>. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know how much of myself I'm going to keep, but yeah. <laughs> it could go into the trash can, but yeah. Thank you um, for the introduction. If you're a shop owner from the 1980s or 90s, and you got some grief from Cabsy in Whitechapel, then we apologize. <laughs> we apologize for that. Uh, he's a changed man. Right, so we'll kick off. So the first topic is A-level results and GCSE mm. results. And... I read a shocking statistic this morning, which is that over the last year, results have gone up by a dramatic from 46% to 70%. <laughs> is there a reason for that? <laughs> what do you think, Kabzi? Are you, are you happy? Are you unhappy about the inflation of A-level results? And like, I think what's happened is that now all of the A-level results are given on the predicted grades yeah. as opposed yeah. to actual grades. So Well, that was just this year, right? Because of COVID. Yeah, but it was last year as well, because right. that was when the exam season was. That's but this true. year has been the inflation. Yeah, it's been an inflation, but I think it's it, last year was pretty bad as well. Right. But I think this year has gone like mega bad because people <laughs> have like gamed the system properly. Yeah. Interesting. And, and it's a repeat of that same system, right? This year with A-levels and GCSEs. So I mean, I mean, absolutely proud that everyone's done really well, especially within our Muslim and Asian community. You know, from a personal perspective, like I have a family member who got away with this during the GCSEs last year, mm. right? She got the predicted grades and it basically allowed her to go into her A-levels. Now, when she started doing her A-levels, she did not 
concentrate as much or study as much or prepare as much and i think she thought she would go scot free and get mm. these free grades because yeah. being in the exam room and going through that experience is really really important and yeah. is vital for life experience yeah, yeah. and kids who have not had this experience in their gcses and on the way to their a levels mm. they can have a tough time in in real life in real life and when they do their degree yeah of course 100% so she flopped oh did she she oh. flopped her first year Uh, here I am thinking people should really be gunning for this right Absolutely. try their best and because uh, predicted grades is not as stressful as sitting in the real exam I'm Un- sorry 100% I mean I think it raises a more holistic question as well but what is the point of school and this emphasis on grades I think there needs to be kind of a, a larger thinking around how we can design a better education system because we all remember that time when you know math was enjoyable because we actually understood it but i just went that little bit too fast and we turned from actually learning from first principles to just memorizing for the sake of an exam and the sake of grades and i think that's what's kind of happening especially because a levels is what gets you into the good university and that's what gets you into supposedly a good job and people are memorizing and focusing and gaming the exam rather than actually learning for the sake of learning but i don't think that's happening is it because like as in this year yeah. like, I, i agree with the general sentiment but i don't think that's what's happening this year i think what's happening this year is that instead of exams you've got the other metric which mm. is how much does your teacher like you or <laughs> how much money are you paying the school yeah. to get the result. like you know the it, like this is the biggest difference this year between independent schools Ah, and public schools. So the people who are paying money are getting the better grades. Yeah. And it could be a mixture of different things. It could be like, you know, the fact that they're paying and they get better education and also that, you yeah. know, the teachers are more, you know, inclined to give them grades, but also they'll have more access to laptops and other extracurricular mm. support that mm-hmm. they may not have. And then they've got bigger workspaces mm-hmm. and that makes a big difference mm-hmm. as well. So I think I agree with what you're saying, but I think that what's happened here is that the metric for success is moved from exams to how much your teacher likes mm-hmm. you whereas it should probably be how good you are at understanding the subject mm. that thing is separate from the other two 100% that's really interesting yeah but yeah but good luck to everyone who's just completed the a levels hope the bumping grades means that you have got into the university of your choice you know the other thing is it's like really i feel like it's slightly unfair as well mm. because when everyone has a stars yeah. or nines or whatever then it's like well you know now what yeah. you know exams are partly about differentiating between mm. people as well mm. it's not exams why do we do exams why do we care about how good a person did something it's ultimately because it's a signal of you know what that person's abilities are mm. and that's relevant for then you know their career and other things but if you've got rid of that signal for employers and for universities it becomes a lot harder to Judge the person. Or, you know, get, but that's actually why I think to some degree it's a, it's a good thing because there's a bit of a disruptor here. The university had to rethink how they judge between students. I mean, what is that? Is it an Einstein quote, I think, about if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, then, you know, it'll grow up his whole life thinking it's dumb. And that's kind of what exams do, kind of judges everybody on the same basis. And different people have learned in different ways and expressed what they learn in different ways. So maybe it'll be a good thing that universities actually start looking at alternative ways of judging a person's ability or capability. instinctively my deeply held view on this this is like probably like out of touch with the times maybe this is like dare i say it the michael gove in me coming out which is i really <laughs> like exams okay i really dislike michael gove but that's a separate <laughs> point i feel like if you're bright enough and even if your skill set is something else you'll work out a way to make Skips. it happen mm. we'll carry on so cabsy has to <laughs> cabsy. cabsy has to check the camera every time and then make sure that everything's recording still yeah. 
We'll show you the first time. We'll probably cut it after this. So en enjoy Cubsy's, uh, you know, <laughs> for 360 view of Cubsy while it lasts. So what's next? I think we've got... Uh, yeah. Oh, this one's yours, isn't this it? This is mine in the new Ocean's Eleven. But this time, instead of it being a bank heist, it's all happening online. So $600 million worth of cryptocurrency has been siphoned from Poly Network by a hacker who is claiming is doing this for the greater good and has promised to return the money. But last Wednesday, Potter Network rang the bells, begging essentially the you know crypto exchanges and miners who process the transactions to please you know somehow stop this hacker from transferring his tokens that he's stolen. So this is the new kind of bank heists that are happening these days, all online and all full view of the entire internet. And what's funny was that the hackers are communicating through the blockchain, so it's all public and everyone's watching this. Telling, you know, Poly Network and others that, uh, you know, we're doing this with greater good. We're going to return the money. They have returned about $346 million so far. As of this morning, he's returned of most of it. Has he? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, he's returned most of it up to now. And whether that was because of public pressure that everyone was watching this and, you know, somehow, you know, you've got these amateur detectives sleuthing, trying to find this person's IP address. And he kind of got cold feet and decided to return the money. Or he was actually doing it for good it would be interesting. But it just shows the volatility of the crypto market. And, you know, it's not as secure as, uh, you know, there's still many, many problems there. But this obviously has happened before. It's not the first time that these big things have happened. You know, the most famous was with Ethereum back in 2016. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they had that big $50 million was stolen from the Ethereum network through a vulnerability. And at that time, I mean, obviously it was a lot smaller and $50 million was a lot of money at that time. And so they decided, they did a bit of a vote and they decided to what they call a split in the network or a hard fork. And they decided basically any transaction before the stolen, you know, we'll just ignore the transactions of the stolen amount and we'll go back before the time and continue from there. But some of the hardcore believers in Ethereum said, no, you know, code is law and we have to, if somebody stole the money, that, that was just that was it's the fair game. It's fair game. And so that's when Ethereum Classic came out. So you have Ethereum Classic, which acknowledged the 50 million and Ethereum, which is, you know, the more popular one today, which has not reversed that. Um, so did the Ethereum Classic mean that the thieves essentially got the 50 million. Yeah, but on a different token. So it's, you know, Ethereum Classic, I think, wasn't worth as much as in the normal Ethereum. So that um, 50 million went down to like 20 million. I don't know how much it went down to exactly, to be honest, but obviously it was worth a lot, a lot yeah. less than it would have been. But I mean, I think this raises two kind of interesting observations. The first that's interesting is that, you know, law enforcement hasn't really been involved, at least not yet in the Potter Network, at least not publicly. Yeah. It's all kind of been, you know, the internet and like Potter Network communicating with Binance and other commodity exchanges and putting public statements to ask the hacker, please return the money. Um, I mean, if this was an actual bank heist, you'd see like helicopters and, you know, the police getting involved and it'd be a very much like on the news, whereas this is kind of just happening by the fly, which yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, interesting to see. And it also shows that, you know, we've moved maybe faster than governments have managed to move and we're living in a new economy. Yeah. What I find astonishing is that I read, A, he says he's done this for fun. Mm -hmm. B, he doesn't care about money. Now, <laughs> that's what they all say. No, no, no that's unbelievable. Like someone who's got what? How, how many million? 300, 600 million. 600 million. He does not care about money. Thirdly, apparently that it's going to be very difficult for him to launder that money via the crypto world, right? Hence, he, he had returned the money. But that I think that's nuts. a really good thing though, isn't it? Like the fact that yes. for the first time, it's, you know, a big heist like that. Because I think there's a lot more infrastructure around 
visibility onto the blockchain. So like ordinary yeah. people can now like Google and, and understand how to like actually look at the blockchain mm -hmm. and actually view it. There's a really interesting YouTuber actually called Coffeezilla. All right. Really funny. He's like the internet detective where he looks at like scam coins mm. and he does exposés mm. on these people who are like YouTubers and others who have been pumping coins basically. Yeah. And he looks at their blockchain and he says, look, these guys have been like dumping this coin and just making <laughs> money off you. But the point is an interesting one, which is like for the first time, the 50 million heist, I didn't have the same kind of issues around it. Like you could get that yeah. money out. But these days... Because there's a lot more, I think, infrastructure and there's a lot, it's a lot clearer who the big players are. If you tap into the big players where the big liquidity is and say to them, look, guys, don't process this. Yeah. It becomes very hard to like. I mean, it's good and bad because I think good because, I mean, that's the whole point of the, of, of the blockchain is to be transparent. So even though like I've stolen your money, everyone can see that I've stolen your money. If you flag that this wallet has stolen money in it, don't transact with that person. I mean, it's up to the person whether he wants to transact or not, but, you know, it can be flagged as an account. But the downside is that, I mean, the whole point was supposed to be decentralized and not in control of any party. But if you're now involving the big crypto exchanges, as you mentioned, and telling them, you know, ban this account, and there were some people complaining that, you know, the crypto exchanges shouldn't be involved because that kind of defeats the purpose. They're just now, instead of being the government controlling your money, it's a crypto exchange mm. controlling who can transact. And so, you know, there's a, it's a balance that needs to be had. But personally, I think this, in a way, sort of like, encourages people to continually invest in crypto. So what I think the price will increase a little bit because of this news does right. Anything that someone tweets or something they hear about, they start <laughs> putting money into crypto on Bitcoin or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think I want to look in a second, actually, see what the prices are on, on Bitcoin. I mean, the price did drop on significantly when, did. You, when you stole the, the, the funds. Yes, yes, but yes. Sure yeah, but it's actually on the, on the, rise, again. On the rise, especially uh, Ethereum and uh Bitcoin. I was thinking from the exchange's perspective, was it Polychain or something? Poly, Poly Network. Poly Network. They must be loving this. Like, can <laughs> you imagine like earlier this week when it was like, oh, heavens, 600. We're done for. <laughs> this is, it's all over. It's yeah. game over, right? Yeah. And then like by Friday, they've got all that money back. Yeah. And they've actually offered this guy, they're calling him White Hat Hacker, hacker and they've offered him $500,000 okay. as a prize. To return the money. For, for spotting the issue and then returning the money. Oh, right. Because I bet they were like, they were running the numbers, their team, and they were like, oh my, this is like, this is going to cost <laughs> us millions. I uh, mean, not just that. I mean, it's happened with, I mean, the first big crypto exchange was Mt. Gox in, in you know, they were founded in yeah. Japan. And they had a huge thing where they lost, what was it? Like, I think it was like $450 million at the time. At that time, that was the entire exchange. I think 80% of Bitcoin was traded on that exchange. Crazy. And completely collapsed. People lost all their money. And that was like the big blow to, to Bitcoin at the time. Obviously, I mean, it survived, so yeah. looks like these lows won't do too much harm. But that definitely uh, could yeah. have you know, yeah. knocked Poly Network out of the water. It's the highest at the moment, thirty-three, three nine two GBP. The whole thing is just fascinating. Like how government point is really interesting mm. because I think governments there's an underlying uncomfortableness. Yeah. I don't know if that's a word with cryptocurrency generally mm -hmm. because it goes after the heart of mm. their you know, one of the hearts of their power, mm. uh, which is control over the fiat mm. currency. Mm. And when you take that away, there's a lot less left. And so because of that, they're like, well, look, guys, what's the point of it? Like, why are we going to enforce mm. this thing somewhere? Because it's like supranational anyway, it's beyond countries, like these blockchains and the cryptocurrency network. It's like, well, we don't necessarily have jurisdiction over this. Why do we care? Yeah. What we're trying to do is actually trying to like regulate yeah. the cryptocurrencies yeah, yeah. for a start to get some control mm -hmm. over them. But if you mess up, then it's kind of, 
It's your know, fault. It's your fault. Yeah. But you know the saying, uh, if you can't beat them, join them. I think banks will eventually start their own crypto. They are, Everyone yeah, 100%. Will, more or less. You know, the big boys, they will. I agree. I think that's the direction of travel. Uh, I mean, the Bank of England is working on their own cryptocurrency at the moment. I think a lot of different... Is that a fact? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of in different like central banks are working on something. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. But, you know, the, I think the other point to make here is that I think the governments and the regulators, it's been a complete and utter dereliction of their duty to protect consumers. I think they're trying. The FCA and others have come in and they've been like quite hard on certain cryptocurrencies. But because they're, you know, very ignorant about this, quite frankly, and about five years behind what the cutting edge cryptocurrency is, they are doing it in a really cack-handed way. Yeah. So the FCA cracking down on Binance and making it like a persona non grata mm-hmm. in the UK financial system has meant that people like Barclays and others have said, we're just not going to like let you transact with Binance, mm-hmm. which has meant that essentially consumers are worse off. Mm-hmm. Like People who are using Binance are now worse off mm. and feel less secure. Mm. And there could be a run on cryptocurrency in their assets mm. as a result of all of this, mm. caused by, bizarrely, the FCA. <laughs> it just Doesn't boggles the mind. I'm like, yeah. I get quite upset yeah. about this. No, 100%. But I think, I mean, there's a bit of a tassel here because, I mean, I think consumers at the same time who buy blockchain are like, we don't want to be part of the government, don't touch our money. And then, you know, when they lose their money, like, oh, where's the FCA now? <laughs> so, I mean, I guess you also have to choose if you are transacting with Bitcoin and blockchain and, you know, cryptocurrencies in general, um, you should know what you're getting yourself into. I think we should move on to our next one. And this one is entitled The Death of Office Working and the Death of well, I guess it's not really the death of it's the rise of flexible working yeah. and work from home. Obviously, we're experiencing it at our mm-hmm. office, right? Where as both all members of the team are, I think, coming to terms with what this means. Mm. You know, you guys are quite lucky. I mean, maybe not for you as much, Cabsy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, some of you are quite young. <laughs> that's not a slight on you. That's true. That's I, true. I, I'm not young either, right? Thanks so for the for, reminder. So for us, it's like we are getting readjusted with a new world. I come from a corporate law world where a lot of places you're supposed to be in the office. Mm. You start late 9.30, 10.11ish, you know, not 11, but 10.30 is okay. It's pushing it, but it's fine. But then after that, you're expected to stay late mm. and stay late in the office for a long time. So there's that, you know, be seen at your desk culture. Mm. And then you you shift that to completely at home where no one really knows what's like, you've got what's no visibility. On? And then now there's this like weird kind of hybrid situation mm. going on. Mm. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Like, what have yeah. your experiences been like about I this? mean, the work from home, I love it, to be honest. I mean, we've always been, from the beginning, we were kind of a remote company. Um, I think we dabbled in office for the first two weeks and COVID hit. And so we've been remote for the past year and a half. And now obviously we have this amazing office. And what I quite like is the combination. So like, you know, when you want to work from home, you can. And when you want to come to the office and maybe be a bit more productive sometimes because you want that different space, you can. But what it means is that you just kind of, instead of you being forced to come to the office, even if you're feeling like, you know, grouchy and not going to be productive and, you know, just sitting there for the sake of sitting there, now you can actually balance that and go with the times that you feel more productive and less productive. So I'm absolutely loving it so far. I think it's great flexibility that you can have. And also it saves so much money and time in commuting. (laughs) Uh, Put it this way, right? A scenario like this was a dream. I mean, I was in banking for 11 years. They still needed the whole team to be in front of them to give the morning pep talk or the huddle or, you know, they needed an audience in front of them. For me, I need to deliver. And also there are measurables. 
Now, if I'm doing this within my time, and if I'm doing it at my own comfort at home or wherever I am, I'm not going to clock in at nine and clock out at five o'clock. I'm working till eight, nine, 10, 11. If you're going to tell me to come into the office where I'm much more flexible in other ways, I'm going to come in at bang on nine and I'm going to leave at five or whatever. Uh, 4.59. You know what I mean? Uh, I'm, I'm going to go, right? That's true old boys now right those days of calling in sick and coming in a lot late and you know saying my dog's you know chewed up the homework or you know my cat's dead okay those days are gone right we're not gonna do that right so but it, but it depends on who you hired right yeah. so if you're hiring a young person who doesn't really care is not really serious about the yeah. job yeah you're gonna get that but that's down to management to yeah. understand those it's really about the culture those characters the, the culture and the trust to counterpoint that People like Goldman Sachs have said, look, we want you back in the office. Mm. Yes, they did. And even Google have said they're going to yeah. give you a pay cut, pay cut now, yeah. if you don't come into the office. And I can see it from an employer perspective, which is that you know that there is a benefit to having people in the office as mm -hmm. well, because you get to create the culture for a start. Yeah. For us, that's important. But then the other thing is that there is a certain something that you get from meeting someone in person mm -hmm. that you wouldn't really get elsewhere mm. at the same time i'm not saying that the obvious outcome that's that's going to result is everyone back in the office i just mm. don't think that's going to happen mm. but at the same time i don't think like a fully remote is where we're going to end up either it's going to be a question of either the least flexible employees are probably going to be giving you one day a week to work from mm. home and the most flexible are going to be like you can work four days a week and you know one day in the office mm, yeah mm. So I, I think that's the question. That's what we're discussing. Yeah, here. I mean, although at the same time, like, I mean, that if it is, you have to be in the office one day a week given. Um, that can, now you cannot, means you can, cannot be anywhere else but close proximity to the office. It means you cannot live abroad. You can't be a digital nomad, which I think a lot of people are also liking. Mm. And about in person, I don't think in person is going away, but it's more that your community and your work are now kind of separate. And so you're in person with people all the time, but your colleagues can be online or your work can be online. And there's a shift also in the nature of work. So Google, for example, I think that, I mean, they're doing a pay cut, but the nature of many engineers and my neighbor works at Google, for example, he's loving it at home because as an engineer, you can be remote because your work is kind of your work yeah, yeah. and you just have to like, you know, bang it out. And so he, he doesn't mind taking the pay cut because he saved so much more money. But also raises this kind of larger question about governments and taxes and where you reside. Because if I'm living like six months of the year in one place and six months of the year in another place, where do I pay my taxes and how do I pay my taxes? And I think for now, there's been this kind of trend of digital nomads and they've kind of gone under the radar. Governments just kind of yeah. ignore them. You know, yeah. they don't actually pay taxes in the right places. But if everybody starts doing this, government's going to say, well, well hold on there. Uh, no. You know, we're going to start uh, taxing you in the, in the right places. I think it is job specific, right? There are many, many roles that needs for the employee to come into the office yeah, of course, and, and, yeah, and of conduct course. their role their and their job Can business and whatever they need to do. Can you imagine if like a fireman said, oh, no, I want to work. Probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he's just like on Zoom. Like, oh, you move the, yeah. move the holes that way a little bit. Not only missed it, you missed it back. Can you hear me? Can you I hear mean, me? You're laughing, but that, that's not too far away. We're going to have like robotic, um, what do you call them? Fire engines and drones with like things. There's going to be a fireman sitting in his office on a computer, like moving the drone. And it's already happening with the military, isn't it? You have these people in military uniforms, yeah, but they're yeah. sat in an office in the US and they're controlling drones over that's true. Afghanistan. That's true. So um, as much as we're laughing, it's happening. It could, yeah. Very true. <laughs> can I ask a question? You can. Yeah. Very important question. Yeah. Who's Khizr? <laughs> <laughs> Try to call him. No, no sign of him. No sign of him yet. Of him yet. <laughs> anyway, I think uh, what moving on to the next subject. Yeah, we should. One final one. 
just instant thoughts on it. Yeah. Do you think companies should have to fund to kit out their employees' home office? 100%, yeah. I mean, if they were kitting them out at, at the office and you're paying so much money for an office and you have the desk and the chair and whatever else it is, and that's now gone, surely no, you want... it's not gone. That's the thing. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a balance because you have to see like what's the whole objective. Like, if you want your employees to be as productive as they can, and, you know, if you're going to skimp out on an office chair and get back problems, that's probably worse for you as an employer in the long run. Yeah. So rather, you know, I mean, obviously it's a balance. You don't want to, you know, you want to see the cost benefit. I mean, from a purely selfish point as an employer, you want to see the cost benefit. Okay. This so, is very, so you're for it. Yeah. This, this is a very good question, but who, who's asking this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking. Are it. you asking this? Or this is like, it's a, I mean, Kizu Kizu that is out there. Kizu wrote it down. So I'm yeah, asking. Yeah, some agenda there. I'm, I mean, I'm just saying what Kizu is saying. <laughs> All right. Okay. So what do you think? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think it's, uh, if you ask any employee who's working from home, They'll just say yes, yeah, of course. But yeah, but I'm, I'm to... not asking you as an employee. I'm asking you as an objective. You're an influencer, Kabzi. You're influencing at least a hundred people. <laughs> I, I, mean, I mean, reason. I'll give you a reason. I, I I was interested in this question because it sort of like relates to me, and I was thinking about this recently. I have a studio at home, right? So I'm in the studio. Yeah. And I've got one to about sixteen LED lights on the ceiling, and I've got a fifty-five inch TV monitor yeah. and i've got my ultra wide monitor and i've got my big supercomputer yeah which is running for eight nine ten hours yeah right and the components are working every day five days six days yeah and this is because i'm working on ifg stuff yeah so even like subjectively and like yeah from my own personal opinion i'm like okay so who's paying for this hmm. electricity and the cost of running hmm. and blah blah who's paying for this i am can this be managed by my employer or someone else so yeah. this cost so yeah it's a really interesting question so yeah well, what's I, your I, answer I, then i think my answer is <laughs> obvious yeah my answer is uh, yeah i mean but the, i mean there's also a balance there isn't it because it's not like uh, i think what employees have to do is they have to also like look at you know, okay, can we give people a budget some employers need more than other employees yeah and if you're paying for an office as well, and now people want to, oh, I want to work from office and from home, and you know they get that extra flexibility, should it be on the employer's now job to get you know the office kit, pay for the office, and get the home kit. Right. Yeah. So sorry, I'm sorry, yeah. cutting you there. My employer has given me the opportunity to work from home and give me this flexibility, which mm -hmm. helps me. So is it right for me to say to my employer, yeah, hundred percent, you've got to kit everything out in my studio, right? Mm -hmm. You've got to pay for my bills, you've got to pay for my hardware, you've got to do this. No, no, yeah. I, I, I don't agree yeah. with that. Interesting. I 100% don't agree with that. What are your thoughts? My thoughts. So I think that it depends on person to person. Yeah. So I think like your, like me, like your average worker doesn't need like a supercomputer. Yeah. Um, if you're an engineer, you definitely need a bit more kit. And if you're a videographer, which is very rare, actually, yeah. you'll need more kit, right? Makes sense. And I think the other thing is that, you know, some of this kit can be portable as well. So the mm -hmm. key thing is obviously the laptop, mm -hmm. which I think it makes sense for the employer to provide. Mm -hmm. And possibly, like, obviously on, on IFG, we do actually have like a budget for yeah. your home office as well. Yeah. And I think it's fair to have a budget approach where it's like, okay, fine. You know, if you want to work from home, which we support, we want you to do, you know, look after yourself, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So make sure that, you know, you have this budget. If you need more than on a case by case basis, let us know. Yeah. But I do think that there's like a fine line here yeah. as well, where I think it, the employer needs to make a decision yeah. on what they're doing. And then just stick by it because like you can't have 
100% facility for like, you know, office and 100% facility. For no, remote. it doesn't make sense. Because otherwise the employees just, you know. Doubling the cost. Doubling the cost unnecessarily. Doubling the cost. So yeah. People who's got like huge offices and really plush setup and they're all their employees are working from home. They're like, hey, we're paying a huge rent here. It's not worth right? it. Right? What's it? going on? We need our people back. Yeah. So or they can get rid of the office. Or they can or get downsize rid of the office. office. But then again, yes, yeah, the culture change, isn't it? Yeah. Like I think I like within like, I'm gonna tell you my age, but I think right now the experience I'm having with this organization that I work for, yes, it's a small organization, yes, it's a startup, it's not a blue chip company yet. But, that's it. That's it. You had it here first. Yeah, Go on. That's right. But you know, I, I'm having one of the best experience ever. But then again, I'm working harder than I would work for a nine to five job because that doesn't really matter, right? Because if you also think about it, although we have this flexibility and our communication is on Teams, WhatsApp, and it's ongoing till 11, 10, 11 at night. Whereas if this was for another company, I'd just like, why are you having a laugh, mate? Yeah. <laughs> I'll send an email saying, guys, yeah, can you stop this nonsense? Right? I've got work life balance, et cetera, et cetera. I'll pull out the uh, work, what do you call it? Handbook and all that. <laughs> Which Mossin is writing at the moment. Which Mossin is writing. But I, I think you reviewed it as well, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, do. Like, you know, but I don't do it with us. Yeah. Why? It's not because I'm getting a huge amount of money and, uh, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, I'll just shut up. You know, although we pay competitive, of course, for people who are there want to join <laughs> IFG. Kabzi is proper politician, Honestly, isn't he? Honestly, this guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, last two topics. One is house prices. Yeah. So house prices have been going up and then they've kind of now stabilized mm. and going down. And the thing that I wanted to, I guess, think about and talk about is the multiple of your salary that your average house is now. Mm. So it's around, I think it's around about eight to 11 times right. your annual salary. annual salary. Whereas in 2011, it was about five times. Or, th- or annual, three, was it? Or, or even point? less, yeah. It much like you, if you go a decade earlier than yeah. that, it would probably be three times. Wow. Um, wow. When did this happen? This eight times, 11 times is this recent? Is, this is like over the last decade. Yeah. Okay. So... I guess, how do you guys feel about that? I mean, do, do you own your house? Yeah. yeah, we own the house. And I think it's really, really, really good. It's a huge burden, right? Getting on the property ladder. It's yeah. really, really tough. Even now, it was, it's very tough to get a mortgage. So I think it's a huge step up to yeah. help people. Yeah, yeah. Makes mm, sense. Interesting. I wonder why it's so hard to get a mortgage. I mean, how are banks making money then? If they're accepting, they're complaining there's too much money coming in and then they're refusing to give it out as mortgages. I think conventional banks are. Yeah. I think it's the Islamic, Islamic banks, banks, which is yeah. the... That makes sense. I mean, if you think about it, they are, you know, lending a huge sum of money, right? And but it's you, based on collateral. It's based on the price of the house, isn't it? Yeah, but you know, uh, banks, the last thing they want to do, right? If you can't pay your mortgage, the last thing they want to do is repossess, repossess your property and sell your house. They don't want to mm. go through that. Trust me. That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting to see the factor of salary compared to house prices. I think it's kind of the, the factor of, you know, the world getting a lot wealthier and richer but salary is not meeting that. Mm. And, you know, most of the of the capital or the, or the increase in wealth is being scooped up by the owners of businesses and, you know, the mm. shareholders and people making a lot of money. But employees haven't seen that the same increase in, in, in salary wages. Yeah. And I, that's where you yeah. see the factor. I agree. I agree. Because the average salary at the moment is fairly low compared yeah. to the rest of the world uh, in this country. I think it's a global problem. It's not just a UK it's problem. It's a global problem, I think yes. UK we're actually more balanced yeah. than places like the US, for example. Yeah. yeah. So so what a lot of people do is they go for the joint mortgage option, yeah. right? You include your brother or your sister or your yeah. spouse to actually bump up the Yeah. Uh, the top tip for you guys. Eligibility. 
top tip for I guess you guys and also people listening is to make sure you get into assets. Yeah. Because if you look at the reason why this inflation has happened in pricing, is because it's an asset, mm-hmm. and you know there's been a lot of printing of money, quantitative yeah. easing over the last yeah. decade. And the mechanism by which that happens is, you know, the banks, the Bank of England creates the money and it gives it essentially to the banks. Mm -hmm. And then these banks are supposed to lend it out to the economy. And, you know, that is eventually supposed to trickle down, but it hasn't really happened. And so the banks, they then, they will use it for their own purposes or for corporate lending or something like that. And that's where it ends up in either the property market Mm. or the stock market. Mm. And they've seen massive, you know, rises Mm. over the last decade. Interestingly, the last year, the COVID response has been direct to the consumer. Mm-hmm. And that's led to the rise of Robinhood and GameStop and all this yeah. other stuff. So you can see the direct correlation between mm. what the government, who the government gives free money to mm. and what happens. Mm. But the upshot is put your money in assets mm. because once the money is in assets, then it becomes relatively inflation proof. Mm. And, you know, it just goes up over time. It kind of rise. You know, invest early, 100%. You want to have you know, money working for you while you sleep. Last two minutes, is the subscription economy getting out of hand, Mohammed? Well, we're seeing subscriptions everywhere. Pret launched a subscription for coffee. I definitely benefited from free trials there. Um, so it seems to be infiltrating everywhere. I think there is a bit of subscription fatigue. I think also, you know, buying a subscription is a lot harder. Like if I would pay six quid for like a, I don't know, a Netflix subscription, it's a bit more difficult for me to do than paying, you know, seven pounds for a meal outside at a restaurant for some strange reason. So we're seeing it everywhere. Maybe a new business model will come out, but this seems to be the business model of the day. I think it's only the beginning. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. It's been happening for a little while now, but I think it's it's a start. Who st- mainly started this for me is Adobe. Right. right. So you're paying about £1,700 to £2,400 for a suite of software programs, mm. right? And you get to keep, right? But now you're paying, I don't know, 50, 60 quid a month for the suite. Yeah. Right. And Adobe killed it. They smashed it in terms of revenue. Right. Yeah. And then they used to launch an update once a year. Now they're launching an update every quarter or every couple of months. So it keeps the you know user engaged really happy, and wanting yeah. more and more yeah. and more. Adobe smashed it. For me, I, I think Adobe set the benchmark for the subscription. And, and Microsoft is the same, right? It's, yeah. all, it's all subscription, subscription now. now. Yeah. Which you is buy a copy of Word and now it's yeah, really pay interesting. for months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Be- and uh, what, like, I guess what it does is before it used to cost a lot of money to buy this stuff, right? Mm. 400,000, whatever it was. And they've made it super cheap mm. per year. But you are paying them more. But you are paying them more over time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because that's where it you know adds up. Yeah. And they also benefit because a bunch more people are now into the market. Because yeah. someone may not be able to afford the 400, but they can, weirdly enough, afford the 50 quid yeah. a month. And suddenly they're in the market. Yeah. Yeah. So you're Makes getting money out of other yeah. people. I think from a business perspective, it's also really good because you can kind of plan now. Because if you know that every month I have 100 customers, you can plan a bit more long term about this is what I need to do. This is how I can build my product. This is how I can plan the timing rather than being a bit more spontaneous. That's good. I think we're done pretty much on the subscriptions, right? Yeah. Oh, I, no, actually, one, one more thing on the subscriptions. Isn't it? Especially for desis, I found that they really don't like subscriptions. No, they don't. It's fundamentally quite hard to part an Asian man with his money. (laughs) And, you know, if you're, because like Mohsen, he was like, he didn't want to pay six quid for a subscription to something. And he was like adamant that he didn't want to pay it. 100%. And I mean, Mohsen, to be fair to him, is a man that yesterday sent me to Westfield to buy a two quid headphones. And he said, (laughs) don't pay any more than two quid for them <laughs> so i went to the stall guy and i was like okay do you have like simple headphones he was like yeah i've got it for five pounds 
And so I said, all right, let me call Mohsin. And I called him <laughs> and he said, no. Amazon he, only sells it for two quid. I know, I know. And then Mohsin was like, no, don't, don't do it. And the guy started laughing and he's like, okay, tell him that if he can do it three quid, I'll, uh, I'll give it to him. <laughs> so I, I called him back again and Mohsin was like, no, walk oh, away. Oh, serious? Walk away. <laughs> <laughs> so I walked away. So, I mean, we are using that man as an example, but the point still remains, right? I think I feel uncomfortable you know, subscribing to too much stuff. Yeah, I actually disagree with that. I think rest of the community, non-Asian, have become accustomed to that, the subscription culture. Yeah, it's within their budget. Mm. So you've got Netflix, six quid, you've got Amazon uh, Prime, another, I don't know, whatever it is, seven quid, eight quid. Microsoft. Right? Uh, then you've got Disney, yeah. you've got yeah. Microsoft Word, which, uh, you know, the um, office that they pay three, four quid. That's within there. Yeah. And these are all bite-sized amounts that they can digest. Yeah. They probably got about five or 10 apps yeah. on your phone. So I think there's a lot more room for the subscription culture because people have adjusted to that. Yeah. Interesting. And if you say, and I, yeah, I agree with the Desi people, maybe our people maybe have not. But And, and maybe there's like a play here, perhaps we should wrap up, but maybe there's a play here about aggregating subscriptions together mm -hmm. because, and have just like mega subscriptions where you know you own this subscription and as a result of that you own everything else as well i mean that was the whole point so netflix was supposed to be the subscription for all your films and there's this aggregation but then now it started to become disaggregated again because now you have disney plus and disney pulling their films from netflix and now yeah, you have yeah, yeah. Aggregation. yeah aggregation disaggregation <laughs> but then again you hear this other uh, company is gonna come through i don't know sky or whoever i'm not sure they're gonna merge all these things together, together, together for you <laughs> at, at a cost you get it yeah, so uh, the 21st century dreamworks paramount they're yeah. all gonna have their own individual yeah. franchise and then yeah. someone is gonna try to bring them together yeah. and again you pay them amount <laughs> and then we'll have the ifg prime channel as well coming <laughs> yeah, out yeah, in yeah, about five or ten years time inshallah that's right well on that bombshell i think we should wrap up yeah if you're still here then uh, please do like and subscribe and guess in the comments below what you think Cabsy's ages <laughs> because he did reveal I that. Should, I, I've not had a haircut for a while. I need a haircut. Yeah, well, it's black hair, isn't it? Okay, it's about, it's black about hair. this short. So imagine spikes like in East London, pineapple haircut, <laughs> then guess my age. This actually puts on a few years. Oh, is it? Yeah. All right, okay, fine. So imagine uh, Cabsy is with a pineapple haircut and then guess his age. So if they guess the age right, what's in it for them? What's in it for them? They'll get my duas. <laughs> We'll we'll give like some I don't know we'll give like a free subscription to the fund replicator. Okay, that's a, that's yeah. a, that's a good price. That's actually yeah, a good that's price. A very decent. But they have to be very specific. They have to guess your exact age. Yeah, yeah. Free subscription fund replicator. They're saving how much are they saving? hundred and eighty quid. Hundred eighty. Oh, there we go. That's a big. That one. is a big one. That's a yeah. Get guessing, guys. I know. <laughs> All right. So on that note, then you have to guess exactly the age. Yeah. And what about the month? And yeah. the postcode as well. The month. <laughs> Is a month of no, the age? Just, just the age. Just the age. Just the age. Just the age. All right. Age. Exact age. Well, many thanks, everyone. And uh, until next time, Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum.